Well, praise God. Well, this morning, I would like to minister to you on forgiveness. And I've entitled the message, Forgive as He Forgave. How many know that forgiving is not easy? It's a, it's a tough thing. And, but the truth is that it's, it's a central part of our, of our Christian faith. Forgiveness is really what our, our faith is based off of because we've been forgiven by Jesus. Jesus died to pay the price so that God would forgive us of all of our sins. Our righteousness depends on forgiveness. If God would not have, have extended forgiveness to us, we would not be standing righteous before you. The believers, the people that have accepted Jesus Christ in your heart, if it wasn't for that forgiveness God extended, we would not be standing righteous. And the truth is, how we respond to others should be a direct response to the forgiveness that was extended towards us. It should be a natural response to forgive others if we, if we recognize the extent, the amount of forgiveness that was extended towards us. It would, if we just had a, a revelation of that, it would make it so much easier to forgive others because we would recognize just the, the, to the extent that we've been forgiven. And when we forgive others, it's, it's so much smaller than what's already been forgiven us. And the truth is that in, the enemy is going to use unforgiveness in your life to try to get under your skin. He's going to try to make you fail. He's going to try to make you bitter. And he's going to try to make you angry. Because when you're bitter and angry, then, then you're distanced from God. When you're bitter and angry, you are, are unable to have true fellowship with others. And it doesn't just affect the person that you're having trouble forgiving, but it affects every relationship that you have in your life. Because that bitterness is like a cancer and it spreads out to other areas of your life. As we're going through this, I also want to make clear that forgiveness is not approval. Too many times I think that we think that if we're, we're going to forgive somebody, that means that we, have to be, that we have to approve of what they've done. When someone sinned against us, we figure if we forgive them, that means that we basically told them that it's okay. And that's absolutely not what forgiveness is. Matter of fact, God forgave us for all of our shortcomings, all of our sins, all of our failures. But I want you to know He doesn't approve of those things. When you sin, God doesn't say, you know what, that's okay, you're forgiven. No, it hurts him, it bothers him. But he still forgives us anyway, even though he doesn't approve of those actions. And every time that we, that we fail, that we have a shortcoming, that we slip up, he continues to forgive us. He never stops forgiving us. In the lives of a Christian, forgiveness is more than just mere words. But it's an attitude of heart that we have to have. It's an attitude of a changed heart that we were able to forgive others. We were able to extend the same forgiveness that was given us. You know, I remember one time I was meeting with Pastor Mike, and, and I don't remember what Blake was doing, but it was, he was driving me crazy. And, uh, and I think I was dealing with patience at the time, but it's the same principle. And, and he's just, I think he was just constantly asking questions about everything. He's always pushing back. He's always... And I'm like, Pastor Mike, he's driving me crazy. You know, and I'm wanting some, you ever, you ever talk to somebody and what you're really looking for is that agreement? They'll put their arm around you and like, I understand, I get it, man, that, that kid. But he goes, what about when God's patient with you? How about you extend that same grace? And the same thing goes with forgiveness. When we, when we talk about it, we're like, man, do you know what they've done? 
Can you believe what they've done? We're looking for people to stand beside us. And that's where gossip comes in. People want to stand beside you and like, man, my husband did this or my friend did this or my kid did this or this person did this. And we want somebody to stand beside us and go, oh, man, that's terrible. I can't believe that. When really they should come beside us and say, yeah, but look how much God forgave you. So let's go ahead and look at our first scripture this morning. In Matthew 6, 14 through 15, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. How many thinks this is a tough statement? Anybody ever read this and went, that's pretty hard. I mean, that's, that's sticking right where it counts. That's a tough statement. The Bible says that if you don't forgive others, then your heavenly Father won't forgive you. Well, before we get too far into this, one of the things I want to make clear is what this is not saying. First off, this is not saying that we have to work for our forgiveness. This is not saying that, that if uh, for every sin that you've committed, you have to forgive an equal number of persons that have sinned against you to make sure that you're still in right standing in God. It's not, a, it's not a tally system. I forgave, I forgave, I forgive, so God will forgive, so God will forgive. We don't work for our forgiveness. Matter of fact, the Bible says that salvation and forgiveness is completely a gift of God. So to say that, that we have to forgive others so God will forgive us in the essence of, of we're working for it would be contrary to every other scripture regarding salvation in the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, because it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's get that out in the open. To be clear, salvation and forgiveness of God has nothing to do with, with your works, but it's a free gift of God. So if that's the case, what does this, this statement mean? What is, what is Jesus trying to say here? You know, I believe what we're saying is if we don't forgive others, it's because we haven't had a true revelation. We haven't fully received the forgiveness that's been giving us. You know, in order to, to have a, a heart that doesn't forgive, in order to, to, to never forgive somebody, I, I really believe that, that, that you need to take a look at your own standing in front of God. Because if we had received the forgiveness that God has given us, if we had an understanding of how much we've been forgiven, we would, just in awe of what He's done, we'd forgive everybody of everything that they've ever done there would be no other response that we could have because of that changed heart inside of us and appreciation for the gift that God, has, that, that God has given us. And I'm not talking about specific instances where we struggle. If you're, if you're having a tough time, somebody's hurt you, somebody's done something, and you're having a tough time forgiving them, I want you to know that your salvation is not lost. The Bible says that salvation is based on faith. What I'm talking about is people that, that have hearts that never forgive. They have no desire to forgive. They're not, it's not a Christian who is, who is having a hard time forgiving, but they're going to. They're working through it. But we're talking about people that just completely refuse to forgive. They, they want revenge. They want it now. And that's, you know, that's, that's the, the act of an unsaved person. But if you're a saved person and somebody hurts you, and somebody... You know, sometimes it takes a little bit to regain control of those emotions. It takes a little bit to work through that. But that's always the goal of a Christian is to forgive because 
of what was been given to us, the forgiveness that, that, we've, that we've been extended. It's the attitude of our heart. Do you have a, an attitude of your heart to forgive or do you have that, the attitude of heart to, to be hardened, to, to not forgive, to believe that people deserve something and they, you know, you're, you're not going to be right until they get what's coming to them. They hurt me, so unless they get hurt in return, I'm just not going to be okay. And that's a lie of the enemy. The enemy wants to make you think that, have you ever been through a time like that where you're, you're hurt by somebody and you're thinking, man, if they just get theirs, I'm going to be okay. And then they get theirs and you realize that you're still in the same boat that you were in. Nothing's changed for you. And matter of fact, your unforgiveness didn't affect them at all either. Nobody ever, nobody ever sitting around going, man, I wonder if they're, they're upset at me. I wonder if they haven't forgiven me yet. I mean, people just don't go through life like that. Especially on stuff that they may not even know they hurt you. They don't have any idea what's going on, but you're so offended by what they've done. And all you're doing is, is, is building up bitterness and anger in your own heart and doesn't affect them one bit. See, that's the thing about unforgiveness is it, is it affects you, not other people. But I believe that if, you, if you're saved, if you're a born-again believer and you've received that gift of forgiveness, then, then the attitude of your heart will be to forgive others. Let's look at a story that kind of explains this situation. And we've all, we've all heard this story. I think I talked about it briefly last week, but we're going to dig into it a little bit deeper. But it's the parable of the, of the debtor. And Jesus said this in Matthew 18, verses 23 through 27. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was bought, brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. You see, Jesus often taught in parables when he was talking to the crowd because he wanted to make it easy for us to understand. The truth is that Christianity is not that difficult. Jesus tried to make it as simple as possible. Just believe and be saved. And he tells this parable to, to try to help us understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. And I think the first thing that we really need to take a look at to really come to terms with what he's talking about here is let's, let's, let's change this to, what is this, does 10,000 talents mean anything to anybody in this room? It doesn't mean anything to me. I have no context. What is a talent? Is a really good singer? I mean, what's that? Yeah, 10,000 of them. 10,000 talents. So let's, let's do some simple math. In my Bible, when I was reading through this, there's a little footnote over talents. And it says that a talent is the largest unit of currency of that day. And a talent was equivalent to about 75 pounds of gold at that time. A talent was a unit of weight. So if he's talking about a talent of gold, it was 75 pounds. You guys remember when it talked about the, the crown that David wore was one talent of gold and embedded with, with jewels? That makes you think about what, it, what they stuck on his head, a 75-pound crown. But then it says in my little footnotes, like I said, that a talent is worth 20 years' wages of the common worker. One talent, 20 years' wages of the common worker. 
So let's do some quick math. We'll, we'll call a, a laborer, a day laborer in, in, in uh, the United States. The federal minimum wage is $7.25. I think it's $7.90 in Arizona, but we'll go with the federal minimum wage for, for a common laborer, day laborer, minimum wage, $7.25. So that's $15,080 a year. So one talent is 20 times that. So that brings us up to one talent equaling about $301,000. $600. That's pretty rough, just one talent, right? 10,000 of them. A little bit more math. $3 billion and $16 million. That's what the guy owed him. So a little bit better context of, of what... How many know if, if I owed somebody $3 billion, I ain't getting paid? <laughs> That's a little bit more than my means. And I, don't, I find funny about this. This is a servant that owes that much money. How do you be a servant owe that much money? But, so it says, and since he could, no, could not pay, go figure, $3 billion. It says, his ma basically, his master ordered him to be sold. He's like, you know what? I'm going to cut my losses. I ain't getting $3 billion back. I'm going to sell him and his family, get what I can, cut my losses. So, he goes to do that, and the servant says, wait, wait, I'll pay back everything I owe. I'll, I'll pay back everything I owe. Even though he can't. How many know that the master knows that he can't pay that back? How many know that, that in front of God, people were like, please forgive me, I'll pay back whatever I owe. The, the debt that I owe to you for sin, I'll pay it back. And, and God knows that that can't be paid back. But in this story, the master knows that he's not getting his $3 billion back. But he says, the servant released him, and the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt because he had pity for him. And this is like what God did for us. We are standing before God with a debt that we can't pay, a debt that's so astronomical that there's no way that we could ever pay that back. But instead of, of sending us off, instead of just saying, you know what, do your time in hell. God says, you know what? I'm going to forgive you of that debt. And God's even better because God's a righteous God. The debt has to be paid. The, the penalty for sin is death. So he says, you know what? I'm going to pay that debt for you. And he sends his son. And much like that $3 billion, what we've been forgiven is so astronomical that we can never even comprehend. Just like even now I've told you the number $3 billion, how many of that means anything to you? doesn't mean a thing to me. I can't even comprehend what kind of money that is. Can't comprehend it at all. And the same thing, what we owed to God because of, of our sin, because of our failings, couldn't be paid back. So the kingdom of heaven is just like this, as a king who wished to settle his, his accounts. But he says, you know what? And God says, I'm going to pay that for you and I'm going to forgive you. So if we continue on in this story, though, we see some stuff that, that is just going to amaze us. We, look, we, we read these. You ever read the Bible and you're like, I can't believe that person did that. Are you kidding me? Like, if I was him, I would have never did that. But then we take a look at our life and we do things like that all the time. But in Matthew 18, 28-35, it says, But when that same servant, this is the same servant that just got forgiven $3 billion and $16 million, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So let's get a little bit more context again, because denarii means 
is equivalent to a, a, a day's wage of a common laborer. So we'll figure we do. I did the math again for you. And that comes out to 725 at an eight hour day times 100 days works out to be about $5,800. Significantly less than $3 billion, right? So this, this servant is owed about six grand. 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began choking him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him and says, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Sound familiar? But this guy says no. He says he refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. He says when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to you, to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the same servant from the scripture we just read, this is just a story continued, was forgiven over $3 billion, and now he's throwing a fit over six grand. And then what I find is not only that, is that this guy's got some anger built up in him. He's got a little bit of violence going on. He doesn't just say, hey, you owe me some money, but it says he began to choke him. He walks up and begins to, to choke him out, saying, you owe me money. I want it now. So we have this anger and this violence, all this stuff being built up over this small debt. And then we see that the, the other servants, they see what happened. It says that the other servants saw him and they were, they were distressed. It says they were greatly distressed after they saw what they just saw. I know that the kingdom of heaven is just like this too. That when we act in anger and bitterness, when we don't forgive somebody, the people are watching. The world is watching. And they're going, and they're distressing, why do I want to be a Christian? They act worse than us. Choking people out because they can't be forgiven. I mean, why would I want to be like that? I mean, might as well just stay the way I am. There are less rules and we look the same. But the truth is that as Christians, that's not how we should look. We should be forgiving. We shouldn't be distressing those around us. We shouldn't be young believers who are trying to learn how to be a Christian. They see us acting in unforgiveness or with bitter hearts. We're, we're teaching them the wrong way. Those who have not believed, we're actually making it where they, they won't be able to see Jesus because all they see is the, the angerness. Anger? Is that a word? I don't think it's a word. The anger and bitterness in our heart. That's all they see. They don't see Jesus. And then we go back looking at these amounts again. When we've, if we take an idea, this, this parable, this story, we're looking at the disparity of the amounts. Three billion, six thousand. We begin to see what happens when we, unfor- when we don't forgive people. This is the amounts that we're looking at. Somebody's got this small infraction against us and, and the small debt against us. And compared to what we've been forgiven... It's like a pittance. It's like nothing. We're, we're trying to hold somebody accountable. We're trying to hold somebody to something that we weren't even close to being held to. The amounts are so different. But you can say, but Pastor Wayne, you don't know what they've done to me. 
you don't know how bad it was. If you, if you knew, then you wouldn't be saying these things. You would, you would be saying, no, they deserve to pay. They deserve what they get. I shouldn't have to forgive them. It was so bad. But the grievance our sin caused God so far outweighs the sins that are committed against us. First off, every sin is an affront to God. Even that sin that was committed against you was committed against God. And God's still forgiving them. And we get to, to taste sometimes a little bit of, of that sin, the, the, all the sin that God gives. We get a little taste of it every now and then. And I'm not saying it's good, and I'm not saying it's okay. Like I said, forgiveness is not approval for what's happening. But the little bit that's directed at us is nothing compared to all the sins of our life that were directed at God. And He forgave us. Why shouldn't we forgive and I tell you what, there's people that have been through a whole lot worse than you have and have still forgiven. I finally found the story of the, the, uh, the gal that was in a concentration camp in World War II Germany and was, came face to face with her, one of the guards in the concentration camp that she was in, the death camp that she was in. So I want to I read, her, read her story and, and give you an idea of what some people have come through and still forgave. It says, Corrie Ten Boom and her family secretly housed Jews in their home during World War II. Their illegal activity was discovered and Carrie and her sister Betsy were sent to the German death camp Ravensbrück. There, Carrie would watch many, including her sister, die. After the war, she returned to Germany to declare the grace of Christ. It was 1947, and I'd come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And even though I can't find a scripture for it, I believe God then places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. And this is from a book that she wrote. It says, at one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a cap with skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. That place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook <clears throat> rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I who sins it again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? 
It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held up, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I still stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And, he will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand and the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even then, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, from the outside looking in, if anybody deserved the right not to forgive, it was that woman. Yet she still chose to, and God worked in that. You're right, I may not know all the things that have happened to you. I may not know the horrific things that have been sent your way. But I do know that the only way to heal from that is to forgive, and to forgive with a whole heart. Because you see, when we, when, we, when we don't forgive, when that is the attitude of our heart, just like this, this young man here, this servant, who ends up having to pay back his debt because he didn't show mercy, basically by not forgiving, by not showing mercy to others, we are rejecting the forgiveness and mercy that has been given us. And like I said, I'm not talking about a, a moment in time where you're struggling and you're working through it on the road to forgiveness. I'm talking about an outright rejection of forgiveness. But when we refuse to do it, we're, that's actually what's happening is we're rejecting that forgiveness to us. So let's, let's remember, let's, let's keep in mind what's been given to us when we're presented with the opportunity to forgive others. So the next question is, well, how often shall we do it? How often do we have to forgive? In Luke 17, 3-4, it says, Pay attention to yourselves. This is Jesus speaking. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And in Matthew 18, 21-22, it says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Forgiveness is something that we continue on doing. Basically, he's like, Peter, you're just not getting it. Well, first off, the Old Testament says that you had to forgive somebody three times. And if they did it three times, you forgive them three times. After that, you don't have to forgive them anymore. So this, the first time when Jesus says forgive them seven times, he's like doubling the current requirement. Already, it's, they're like, really? Are you serious? So then Peter, clever, thinking he's clever later, comes up to Jesus and says, so you're saying seven times? And Jesus is like, Peter, you're not hearing what I'm saying. 
what I'm saying is, no, not seven times, but 70, but seven times, but 77 times. Peter, you're not hearing what I'm saying. There is no limit. You continue to forgive. We don't carry around a, a tally book that we can write, forgave him this one. I'm, I'm so glad I'm coming up on 77 because when I get that, I am done with this. But we keep forgetting, forgiving as long as they're repenting, as long as they're turning around. And, and I would say to you that you keep forgiving even if they don't repent because that's going to affect you. But if your brother comes back up to you and he repents, the Bible says forgive him. But look what it says right before that though. It says if your brother sins, rebuke him. Forgiveness is not about allowing sin, allowing these things to happen. Forgiveness has nothing to do with saying it's okay for you to treat me this way, for you to do these things that you're doing. It doesn't make sin okay. It doesn't make any of this stuff okay. And that sin, that stuff that's happening, needs to be dealt with. That's actually the point of repentance, is dealing with what you're doing with. It's turning around from that sin and turning back towards what you're looking at. And if someone comes to you that sinned against you and they repent and they tell you, I'm sorry, I, I sinned against you and, and I, I won't do it again, we're to forgive them. But what if they, they've already said that three times? They keep saying, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you, I won't do it again, but they keep doing it over and over again. How often do I got to put up with this? How often do I got to keep forgiving them? The Bible says pretty much indefinitely. You know, it's often easier to forgive somebody when they sin against you the first time. You figure it's a one-off show. It's a one-off, it's a one-off thing. But as it happens more and more, if they continue to sin against you, it gets harder. And I understand that wholeheartedly. If you begin to question the repentance, do they really repent if they're doing it again? You begin to question their sincerity. They apologize, but how can I believe their apology? You know, we even have sayings in the, in the English language, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. We have whole sayings built around this idea of, of, you know, it's okay one time, but after that, we're done with it. We want to extend mercy once, but once it happens again, we're out of there, we're done. But the Scripture doesn't say that. The Scripture says to keep on forgiving. Now let me be clear, we need to operate in wisdom in this. If your spouse is beating you, forgive them, but get out of the situation of harm. You know, this doesn't mean to, to keep yourself in a position where you're being damaged or hurt. Or, or We need to be wise about this, but we still need to forgive. And like I said, even if someone's not repentant, forgive them anyway. Because forgiveness affects you just as much as anybody else, more so your forgiveness or lack of affects you, and we'll look at that here shortly. In Matthew eight fifteen through 17 it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, we understand that we need to forgive, but now we need to look at this practically. What does that look, look like? 
Well, first, if somebody has sinned against you, as they have, if they have something against you and have done these things, it needs to be dealt with. The Bible says that if someone sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You want to go and say, hey, look, this happened and we need to deal with it. They need to be given the opportunity to repent. To repent. As believers, our goal is always to restore our brothers and sisters, to lift them up, to encourage them, to help them live in the reality of their righteousness bestowed upon them by Jesus Christ. It's not a witch hunt. What this isn't right here is not a witch hunt. We're not going out trying to make people feel bad. We're not trying to make them feel guilty. We're not trying to parade them around. What we're trying to do is restore them. That's why it says, first go to them between you and him alone. And then it says, take one or two others along with you. And I would recommend this be leaders, not just uh, anybody off the street. We're not trying to, we're trying to restore people. You know, the funny thing is, after you're trying to deal with this, and someone still is not repentant, someone is still, and what we're dealing with here, when he says keep taking it to other people, taking it higher up the food chain, we're dealing with people that are not repentant. We're dealing with people that are like, I don't care what you think, I'm going to do what I want. But what I find interesting is that even in those situations, it says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And when I first read this, I thought, man, that means that finally, if they just, I can just put them off. I can just ignore them and be done with them. But then I got to thinking, Jesus loved Gentiles and tax collectors. Jesus was still loving them and trying to reach out to them. You know, we want to do everything we can to, to restore somebody. And, and if, if they refuse to be restored, if they refuse to repent, if they refuse to restore, then there may be a time that they have to be put out. As Paul said, I've, I, have, uh, I forget the name, but he said, I've left somebody to, to Satan, so hopefully he can get this worked out. You know, there may come a point that that comes, comes to pass. But the first thing we need to do is go to our brothers and sisters, and let's make it right. Give them an opportunity to repent. But it doesn't just start there, or stop there. But in Matthew 5, 23-24 says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first to be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So the first thing was when you realized that somebody had done something to you, but now this one is if you realize that you've sinned against somebody else. If you, it says if you're, if you're at the gift of the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, he has something against you because you've sinned against him, then you need to leave your gift there and go to that person. So when somebody sinned against you, you need to deal with it. Give them the opportunity to repent. When you've sinned against somebody else, you need to deal with it. You need to go to them and, and tell them, I'm sorry, you need to repent to them. You need to tell them that you, you apologize and then you need to ask for their forgiveness. Reconciliation is the responsibility of us all. Loving one another, lifting each other up, encouraging each other, restoring each other when we fail, that's the responsibility of us all. In Ephesians 4, 31-32, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. 
You see, anger and bitterness are destructive. Not to the one that you're angry at, but to yourself. It'll eat you up on the inside. A guy named Peter Michelson, I'm actually not sure who he is, but he has a great quote that I'm going to steal here. He says, Bitterness feeds on the carcasses of festering memories. When we can't let the past go, when we feel like something has to be done, when we can't forgive, bitterness and anger stirs up inside of us. It begins to change our attitude. It begins to cause us to be critical of others and critical of ourselves and not just the ones that we're angry at. It begins to spread out like a a cancer to every area of our life. I have read that, that there's even research to show that bitterness can cause health problems as well as shorten your lifespan. Bitterness and anger can physically harm you. It causes others not to want to be around you. Who likes to hang around with bitter and angry people? Not me. Not only that, but anger has spiritual ramifications as well. It's true, there's a holy and a righteous anger. That's, that's anger at sin. But anger at your brother is, is not a righteous anger. Being angry at your brethren is sin. You remember when, when Jesus said that, that lust is like adultery in your heart? It's not actually committing adultery, but lust is adultery in your heart. This is what he says about, about anger. Matthew five twenty one through 22 it says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is equivocating anger in your heart. Anger to murder in your heart, just like lust is equivocated to adultery in your heart. When we act on act unloving and hold on to these things, when we hold on to unforgiveness, the Bible says that we are nearsighted and have forgotten that we have been cleansed of our former sins. 2 Peter 1, 5-9 says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Brotherly affection and love includes forgiving your brothers. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that if you hold on to anger and bitterness and unforgiveness, you become ineffective and unfruitful? And then he says in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In John 8, 3-11, this is a story of the the young woman who was uh, getting ready to be stoned for being caught in adultery. It says the scribe in 1 John 8, 3-11, says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that he might have, have some charge to bring against them. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him, he, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. You see, it's so easy for us to forget what we've been forgiven of when somebody has hurt us. Here's a woman that's committed a terrible sin. She's guilty. There's no doubt that she's guilty. She was caught in adultery, although it's interesting that they only brought the woman in. The man, whom is the the other part that is required for adultery, is let go. But she's guilty. But Jesus says, before you condemn her, let the one without sin cast the first stone. You see, we're like that. We hang on to unforgiveness because we think that they don't deserve forgiveness. But we need to remember that we didn't deserve it either. You know, these, these people are like, she doesn't deserve to be forgiven. She doesn't deserve to be let go. She was caught in adultery. And Jesus is like, yeah, you don't deserve it either. But he was without sin cast the first stone. I've heard someone say, well, what if when Jesus bent down and he was writing on the ground, what if he was writing down their sins as they were reading it? Obviously, this isn't in the Bible. It's not scriptural. But what if? Think about it. He's right. What if every time that you were trying to, to hold something against somebody and Jesus started beginning to write down all your failures and shortcomings? It might make us remember what we've been forgiven of and why we should extend that same forgiveness. And once again, we see that forgiveness does not constitute being okay with something. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. But what does he say? Go and sin no more. Repent. Stop doing what you're doing. But I still forgive you. And Hebrews 12, 14 through 15 says that we should strive for peace with every man, with every man, with all men. Sorry, I'm trying to mix verses up. I think the new, new American Standard says strive for peace with all men. This one says strive for peace with everyone. Same difference. Hebrews 12, 14 through 15 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, before anyone wants to yell too loud, I recognize this is not specifically dealing with unforgiveness and bitterness. This is dealing more with with. Uh, <clears throat> a general sense of Christianity and, and how our, what we do affects others. But the, the, the concept stands that when we're not at peace with other people, that if we are, in this case, if we are, are being angry with unbelievers or different people groups, it limits our ability for them to see God in us. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without no one will see the Lord. You know, if there's a group of people that you refuse to be at peace with because they're doing certain things, you know, if we refuse to minister to, to people that are homosexual, how many of them are not going to be able to see the holiness, for which, the holiness of the Lord because we won't even go talk to them? And the concept stands for people that, that we won't forgive as well because they won't be able to see Jesus if we are unforgiving. Strive for peace with everyone no matter what the issue. We need to strive for peace with them. And the word strive, it means to make great efforts to achieve or obtain something, or to struggle and fight vigorously. You know what that says to me? That it might not be easy. You don't got to fight for anything that's easy. I mean, has anybody ever stood before a, a soft stick of butter trying to push through it as hard as you can with a butter knife? There's no striving to cut butter when it's thought out. 
But we have to strive for this. It means we're going to have to work for it. And we see that without this peace with all men, that we limit people's ability to see God. We actually push them away. We make the Lord less attractive because as soon as we claim to be a Christian, everything we do is attributed to the Lord. Have you noticed that? People will, oh, I can't believe you do that because you're a Christian. Christians don't do that. You ever want to know what you can't do as a Christian? Ask a non-believer. They'll tell you. But the truth is that we actually limit people's ability to, to see the Lord when we act in these ways, when we're not acting in a Christian manner. And the Scripture says that see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Because by it, many become defiled. It spreads out. It's like a cancer. You become critical of others. You begin doing stuff. I mean, bitterness and anger are something that has to be dealt with in your heart or otherwise it can cause all sorts of problems. Have you ever noticed that when you want want your kids to eat something bitter, like maybe a little bit of medicine, or even you look at like cough syrup. Have you ever seen cough syrup? They put about 70 gallons of sugar in that thing so that way people can can drink it and get it down. So you can get your kids to get it down. But have you ever noticed how much of that bottle is actually the medicine? Hardly none of it. A little bit of something that's bitter goes a long way. And it spreads out and it affects everything that it's in. In Acts 7, 59 through 60, we'll take a look at a couple of examples of forgiveness in the Bible. Examples where outside looking in, they had no reason to forgive. In Acts 7, 59 through 60, we're going to look at the stoning of Stephen. In verse 59, it says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This amazes me because this isn't like him laying there afterwards on his way to death. Rocks are being thrown at his head. He's in the middle of being stoned to death. Forgiveness is probably not the last, not the first thing on my mind at this point. But as he's being stoned to death, as he's dying, he falls to his knees and says, Lord, don't hold this sin against him. That's an incredible act of forgiveness right there. Not only has he already forgiven them, he's asking the Lord to forgive them. He's asking God not to hold this against them. You know, when one of our family members gets hurt or somebody gets hurt, I mean, we demand justice. But this is an incredible act of forgiveness. And then what about Jesus when he's on the cross? It says when they, in Luke 23, 33-34, it, it says, And when they came to that place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Jesus has just gone through some incredibly horrible things. You know, it, it's often glossed over. Probably the only movie that did any kind of justice to what happened to Jesus was uh, The Passion of the Christ. And I imagine even that was tamed to what actually happened. And then he's stuck up on this, on this cross and he's hung to die. And he says, forgive them, Father. 
That's an incredible act of forgiveness. And I can tell you right now, since all of you are living, that nothing has happened to you as, as harsh as what's happening to these two men. And they still extended forgiveness. And the last scripture we'll look at today is 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. It says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. You know, as Christians, we need to make sure that we are forgiving one another. The truth is that we are going to, everyone in this room, are going to cause people to have a reason to forgive us. We are going to offend people. We're going to hurt people. There's a pretty good chance that the longer you're with me, there's a good chance that I will probably offend you or hurt you. Never intentionally, but there's a chance that it will happen. And we need to to extend forgiveness to one another. For one, I don't think anybody in this room likes hurting other people. We don't like offending. We don't. And the Bible says that when we don't offend, when we don't forgive, that we should comfort people. Forgive and comfort so that they won't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That's kind of a different idea than what the world thinks. We think that the world thinks that if they've done something wrong, they should get theirs. But as Christians, we need to comfort people. We need to help restore them, lift them back up. Paul asks us to reaffirm our love for those who sin. Forgiveness is for the one who do the forgiving more than anything. If you are forgiving, that forgiveness is for you. It's to help you heal. It's to help you grow. If we, fail, if we fail or we hurt somebody, we want to hear that we're forgiven. But the greatest repair and the greatest gain goes to the one who does the forgiving. Because you're the one that's hurting. And the devil wants us to be at each other's throats. The devil wants us to be angry and bitter at one another because it'll grow and spread and it'll tear down an entire group of people if left unchecked. Paul says so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's forgive, let's love. And I would challenge every one of us here as we continue on our walk with Christ that we would never be outwitted by Satan that we would not be ignorant of his designs, but we would continue to forgive. We'd continue to love. Let's not let the devil have his way. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.